so good to be together. Some of us were here at nine and enjoyed Pastor Charity's leadership of our first of three prayer gatherings. And I want to thank her for all the work she put in. We left the prayer stations around for you later to check out. Meaningful engagement in various aspects of prayer, primarily related to people who don't yet know God or His love in their lives. And you know some people like that, I'm sure. And you cross paths with people like that when you buy your coffee at Tim Hortons sometimes or wherever you are to be a reflection of Christ. And uh, so I encourage you to check those prayer stations out uh, at the end of our gathering today. Father, we just pause again to thank you for your word, your truth. And God, you're the only one who can say my truth because you are truth personified. And as we look at your word today, open our minds and open our hearts as your spirit leads us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first item on the order today is I need to uh, clarify something extremely important that I forgot to say last week in my message. And I, I referred to a Christian girl pop band that Alyssa Shilders was a part of uh, in the early 2000s, and she's the author of the book that we're using as a, as a primary resource in last Sunday and this Sunday's message. Apparently, I neglected to tell you the name of the band. See what I mean? Extremely important. But as I mentioned last week, maybe three or four of you would know who the band is anyways, and two of them are my daughters. So you can guess where the reminder, Dad, you forgot to say the band, because you're going to all go out and download their music today, I'm sure. Zoe Girl. Wouter, if you download a Zoe Girl song, we'll just rejoice with you, man. Zoe Girl. Zoe means life in Greek, and we know life in Christ is the life that they're singing about. So anyway, now you know. Okay. So we continue with part two of this Another gospel message from Galatians 1, 6 to 9. It's the only passage of Scripture in Galatians in the 16-week study that we're going to park on twice, two Sundays. Uh, Living Free is the series. And if you missed last Sunday, I encourage you to go to eaglemont.church and listen and get the background that I shared about what's come to be known as progressive Christianity, and we're, we're learning that it's really nothing new. This stuff has come around uh, from, from decade to decade or century to century. And, uh, but anyway, we're looking at a little more detail, more specifically today, at some of the beliefs. Paul wrote this Galatians letter under the direction of the Holy Spirit, as he did many other New Testament letters. And, and Paul would care a lot about what we're talking about today, actually. I believe that truly. Uh, namely, that key doctrines, key truths that God led Paul to experience and come to know deeply in mind and spirit, that key doctrines of the New Testament are being redefined in some church circles today, again today. That happened in the first century, which is why Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian Christ followers and to their churches which is the body gathered, right? 
Paul had learned that there were false teachers who, after he had poured life and ministry and message of God into these people and had left the region, he learned that false teachers were drawing these Christ followers in this region of Asia Minor and specifically Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, learned that they were being led astray from the simple uh, gospel focus, which just means good news, a Jesus-centric message that, that, again, he had experienced and that he had shared with them. And Paul knew that their eternal salvation was at risk, potentially, in their wandering from the truth of that gospel. So, same passage today as we read last, uh, last Sunday. Let's read it. Uh, Galatians 1, 6-9. Open your heart and ears while I read it. I am astonished, Paul writes. And he, he, he loves these people. Don't forget it. He loves them too much to not tell them the truth, actually. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Very next verse, he says it again for emphasis. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted from us, he's saying, let them be under God's curse. Strong words, God's curse, just means eternal destruction is actually what it means. Anathema is the Greek word. Last week, I mentioned the primary resource for these two messages, as I alluded to a moment ago, is the book, Another Gospel, it's called by Alyssa Childers, and I encourage you to read it, get it and read it if you have not yet. As I mentioned last Sunday, she wrote the book because of an experience that she had of being invited by her pastor in her church in the U.S. to what she thought was a Bible study, but turned out to be a group that was intent on dismantling the foundation of the Bible as God's reliable and authoritative word that she had been raised to believe that it was. She said that resulted in a faith crisis, being a part of that group, understandably. But that's okay because she responded by searching deeply herself. And this book, she wrote, is the outcome of her thorough investigation that took her back to uh, the reliable New Testament letters and also took her back to the teaching of early church fathers who had built their teaching, which was then you know, passed on generation to generation, but they had built their teaching directly on the teaching of Jesus and his first apostles that Jesus made sure were on course, right? I commend her, Childers. I commend her and anyone else who will take searching for answers that seriously. Reminds me of a guy named J. Warner Wallace. Some of you have watched his teaching video on Right Now Media called Cold Case Christianity. Terry, your group did that study, didn't, didn't you? So some of, some of you have seen that. A, a respected Los Angeles detective who's been featured several times on shows like Dateline because of his success in solving cold cases. <laughs> Once an ardent atheist... He used the methods that made him successful in solving crimes to treat 
Christianity like one of his cold cases, after which he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ because of the evidence he saw. My friends, there are answers if you're genuinely seeking. And maybe you are. And if you are, and you haven't, you know, kind of pieced it all together, not that you'll ever totally understand God. Don't misunderstand that statement. But if you're, if you're seeking, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? Who is Jesus? What did he say? What about the Bible? All these big, big questions. I say, way to go. Keep searching. You owe it to yourself to ask those challenging questions. We're providing a few alpha courses these days, and you may want to engage with that excellent tool that will guide you in, in, in uh, asking and answering such questions. So, as previously mentioned, today we're looking at what progressive Christians believe about numerous uh, foundational doctrines or, or key beliefs. First of all, about the Bible. There's an excellent article that this same author, Alyssa Shilders, wrote a few years ago that is entitled, Three Beliefs Some Progressive Christians and Atheists Share. Intriguing title. The first one is this, she says. They both may adopt a belief that the Bible is unreliable. Wow. And, and, and many progressive Christians have. Example, uh, Rob Bell, I used to quote him occasionally for his creative way of expressing things, and wow, did he ever move drastically, sharply that direction some years ago. A well-respected, at that time, evangelical pastor. So sad. About her progressive study group, Shilders said, Although class discussions revolved around many different topics of faith, the Bible was almost always at the center of the conversation. It became clear to me that for people to deconstruct, deconstruct their faith, as the term goes, they had to first figure out what to do with the Bible. Makes sense, doesn't it? In other words, if they convinced themselves that the Bible was not the, the inerrant, uh, and that just means without error, the inerrant and trustworthy Word of God, but merely a, a, a human book, as Rob Bell has said, then they'd be free to redefine other core Christian beliefs. Down through the centuries, there's been strong, strong belief that the Bible is absolutely God's authoritative and trustworthy Word of God for our lives. And, he, and Shoulders gives numbers of good examples, and there's some, just some great church history information in that book as well that is, that is helpful and interesting. Of course, Luther was so strong on this, thus the Reformation. Uh, way back to the first century, Clement, uh, Clement of Rome, that's how you say it. You don't go Clement, because that kind of, what are you saying, right? But Clement of Rome, uh, who knew the apostles personally, wrote this, the Scriptures are true utterances of the Holy Spirit. And so many others, in early church fathers who were strong on this, as Shilders highlights in her book, uh, and, and, and this applies up to and including today many, and, and many, many uh, real intellects of today that have come to believe this. 
And yet we have some like Brian McLaren who in the evangelical, uh, broadly, maybe loosely defined, uh, who, who brazenly say that progressive Christians today have a more mature view of God than our predecessors who wrote the Bible. Astounding. Claiming to, uh, seeming to, to, to claim to correct what Christian scholars for 2,000 years got wrong. C.S. Lewis refers to this type of perspective as chronological snobbery. Minimizing the authority of Scripture is so dangerous because then there's, there's no final authority. On, on Christian belief or, or practice. And so we're left with the door wide open, and we are for many, uh, sorry, for, for any type of belief and or belief system being acceptable, which is precisely what we're seeing today in some circles. And by the way, it's not the purpose of this message, nor uh, do we have the time, but it can be solidly, objectively proven that the Bible is completely reliable, and accurate. And that may be the place where some of you need to start, whether you're a Christ follower or not, to maybe reaffirm that belief or to discover that belief. What a, what a great journey that would be maybe for you. Next, what do progressives believe about the gospel? Again, that just means the good news, the good news message of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. Good news, gospel. Well, the recognition of need for the gospel in our lives begins with what we believe about our own condition. And the Bible makes it clear, as does our own behavior, even when we're very young, that we are born in sin, born with a sin nature, a nature that needs to be transformed by the Spirit of God, and He's the only one who can. Self-effort will never do it. And some of you know that, as I do from experience. In Childers' Bible deconstruction group, her progressive pastor threw out the question one day, who believes we were born good? And who believes we were born sinners? They had just in that group listened to a popular Christian song where the singer's lyrics expressed his great, genuinely, his a genuine gratefulness to God for saving such a sinful person as himself. Her pastor then said, I wish I could tell that singer that he shouldn't see himself that way. Really? Interesting, because that sounds a lot like the, the, the writer of so much of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in, in 1 Timothy 1.15, where he said, Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Progressives downplay sin and certainly don't talk about God's wrath or judgment on sin. It's not a pretty word, but sin need, needs judgment. And thank God that Jesus stepped in to take that for us. But the biblical truth is that we are all born with this sin nature, disconnected for, uh, relationally from God because, because of the original sinful choice of our first human parents. And then we inherit that sin nature. 
Great, hey? But we know that's not the end of the story, thankfully. But, but, but that's the way it works. That sinfulness, that brokenness gets passed down generation to generation. Read Romans and you'll see that clearly. If there was no broken relationship between us and God because of our sin, there'd be no need for Jesus to go to the cross, as he did, to take our penalty for sin upon himself. But he graciously did that for you. Because he knew it was absolutely necessary for our salvation. That's why he said in the last phrase of that very crucial verse that where, where, where John, the, the, the writer of that New Testament gospel, quotes Jesus, John 14, 6. No one gets to the Father. No one gets to God. No one gets to heaven except through me. That's, that's either a very arrogant statement or Jesus is God and he has every right to say it. And we all have to make that choice of what we believe about that. So anything you may read or hear that minimizes our, our sinful condition or minimizes the efficacy of Jesus' work on the cross, warning bells need to be going off. In your mind. Moving on. And, and, and again, this is just a flyby on all of these things. And I'm probably a little behind here, so I'm going to try to talk a little faster. What do progressives believe about the virgin birth? Hmm. Well, obviously, the virgin birth as an historical event as it is, is miraculous in nature. But you know, when you come to believe that God created everything we can see and, and everything out there that we can't see, God created, God created it all. The intricacy of the human eye created by God. Virgin birth is nothing. Virgin birth is easy. Well, the eyewitness account in Matthew 1.18 says, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, I might add, Matthew says, she became pregnant. Virgin? Pregnant? What? How, how does that? Through, Matthew 1.18, through the power of the Holy Spirit who is God. The Holy Spirit isn't, isn't an it. Don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it. It's a person, a third person of the triune God. That's how, that's how this happened. And Joseph, engaged to Mary, verse 19 of, of Matthew 1 says, he was a righteous man. Righteous doesn't mean perfect. It just means a man that wanted to honor God with his life, with his thoughts, with his words, with his deeds. But suddenly, his fiancée, Mary, she's pregnant, and he absolutely knows it wasn't him. What are people going to think? <laughs> Probably played into this, too. You see, jo Joseph, Joseph, it wasn't him. <laughs> Joseph honored God with that part of his life as well. Way to go, Joseph. He knew that sex before marriage was not God's plan and was, in fact, sin in God's eyes for the use of, use of the God-given gift of sex. I mean, you know, your mind can go different places as you imagine. These are real people. The conversation that went on between Joseph and Mary, whether she comes to him and tells him or 
he kind of starts to notice. What did he say? He goes to her and he's, he's no doubt hurt. What's your first thought? I saw that FedEx guy jumping on that donkey quickly a few weeks ago. Whoops. Sorry for that. My wife told me I should not say that. I listen to her quite often. You're free, you're free, <laughs> and you're free to weigh in, you know, on what you think of that. But anyway, that's another, you know. But what happened? He's, 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 he's probably angry. Really. Bewildered. Hurt. Matthew 1, 20 to 25, picks up the story of Joseph wrestling with all of this. And, and this passage tells us that an angel from God was sent miraculously appeared to Joseph in a dream, telling him, message from God. God speaks in a variety of ways, and he can do it. Of course, we all have to discern what we hear and dream about, according to this, right? But Joseph, angel appears to him, telling him to still take Mary as his wife. She had not been unfaithful was the angel's mess. That child within her was conceived by a miracle of God, and the angel says his name will be called Jesus, and he will save his people from their sin. Oh. Joseph. Why does that choke me up? You know what I'm going to say? Joseph knew about Isaiah's prophecies from the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before relating to the coming of Jesus as Messiah and Savior. And he started to connect the dots. He was still astounded, no doubt, that this was happening to him and Mary, but he became convinced that this, in fact, was from God. And I choke up because God did all this because he loves you so much. And the father, the earthly father, not the biological father of, of, of Jesus, needed Jesus as Savior as much as all of us. I mean, just, it's astounding. Some progressive Christians consider the virgin birth along with Jesus' miracles and resurrection as metaphorical. Okay. I mean, I'll just say, that's, that, that's just ludicrous and shows an absolute disregard for, for the veracity of the historical biblical record that came as a result of many eyewitnesses to these events. And if this idea of these things being metaphorical wasn't so serious from a spiritual standpoint, it would be laughable. But it's not funny. Progressives often don't seem to understand how vital the virgin birth is in that if Jesus... Listen, if Jesus would have been born by, the normal, by normal human relations, man and wife, the sin nature that as human beings we all get, as I alluded to a moment ago from Adam, read uh, sorry, Romans 5, 18 to 19 there, brief reference. Romans 5, 18 to 19. I don't think I have that on the screen, but read it. Being the, the sin nature being from Adam, that sin nature would have come to Jesus as well, thus disqualifying him from being the perfect and spotless sacrifice for sin that a holy God required. If there's no virgin birth, there's no forgiveness of sin, there's no, then no possibility of eternal salvation. So yes, yes, Jesus was born fully man, but also 
fully God. He was not born fully God. That's why Isaiah, in the, in the, in the prophetic reference to Jesus coming, said, a child is born, the humanity, a son, capital S, O-N, a son is given, given because he's always existed. Born, fully man, but he was fully God. Huh. So, the next doctrinal point or key belief that progressive Christians are just trying to dismantle is the, the, it's called the deity of Christ, that, that, that Jesus is God. So what do progressives believe about that? Well, please hear me. This, this, this is just so vital. Yes, Jesus, as I said, was fully man, so, so that he would know what it was to live as a human being. But of course, without sin, although he faced temptation. Read Matthew 4, right? Fully, fully human. So that he could represent us human beings before God the Father, the righteous judge, right? 100% man, yes. But biblically, unquestionable, 100% God. Now, can I wrap my finite mind around that? No, we can't. We can't. Of course not. But, but that's okay. If we, could, if we could fully comprehend everything about the nature of God, He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be beyond us as He is, way beyond us. And, and, and I'm glad about that. If Jesus is not fully God, then we have no saving gospel. And, and there are so many Bible verses that make it clear uh, this truth, the deity of Christ. And Jesus Himself personally claimed on numerous occasions, with different phrases, that He was God. An example, a great example. You need to study these few verses at the end of chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. John 8, 58 and 59. Jesus is speaking to the Jews. And these Jews had not embraced Jesus Christ as the, their, their long-awaited Messiah. These particular Jews in this, in this passage. And Jesus, in, their, in his interaction with them, says something that indicates he was, he was alive at the time of their father Abraham, God's chosen starter of the, of the, of the Israelite nation, right? Jesus says that something that indicates he was alive at that time and, and before. And, and they respond, they, they just, what? Who do you think you, what are you? Ah, they're ticked off. They can't comprehend you. Jesus answers back with a unique sentence. He says, before Abraham was, I am. May seem like a kind of a strange way to answer. What, what kind of answer is that? I am. We might think. <laughs> but the Jews knew. The Jews knew in that little phrase what he was saying. May seem strange to us. But the Jews remembered the story written in Exodus 3.14, in Exodus chapter 3, but verse 14 is the key verse of Exodus 3. Exodus 3.14, look it up. They, they knew where that phrase that Jesus had just used, where it came from. Back then, God identified himself to Moses at the burning bush with this phrase. When Moses said, who shall I say sent me? God just said, I am that I am. You know what it means, simply? 
It just means I've always existed. That's what that phrase means. I've always existed. A characteristic of God alone. Jesus takes it, applies it to himself. And the Jews in this John 8 historical narrative heard Jesus do so. And in doing so, they knew that he was claiming to be God, claiming deity for himself. And according to their Jewish law, that was blasphemy to do so. And stoning to death was the penalty. That's why in verse 59 of John 8, we see the, these Jews picking up stones to carry out that penalty. They had no doubt what Jesus was saying, that he was God. Wow. They didn't get to him, though, because it wasn't his time. I don't know how all that looked, but he just kind of got away. It wasn't his time. But, but again, the point here, please hear it, is that their actions to stone Jesus are significant because that tells us that they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, that he was claiming to be God. Now, of course, it's now up to each and every one of us to either believe that or not. But, but what you cannot do is call Jesus a good teacher and then in your next breath say, but he's not God. If he actually is not God. He's not a good teacher. He's a liar. Because here, unequivocally, he declares, I am God. Let's uh, skip ahead to slide 24. Easy on the amens there. What do progressive Christians believe? We've got two more. Uh, yeah, two more. And they'll, they'll, be, they'll be brief. About the cross. What do they, what do they believe about the cross? What do they, uh, the cross of Jesus. Well, they've also begun to question the, what's called, what's referred to in theological terms as the atonement. You heard me reference that la last week. In other words, that, that, that Jesus was our substitute, key word, substitute on the cross, and paid the just penalty for sin, which... God had already declared before sin ever existed. You read it in, in Genesis. Before sin came into the world, God had already declared what the penalty for sin would be. If you sin, you'll die. Death. That's how, that, that's how bad sin is. We don't have time to get into that. But he paid the penalty for our sin so we wouldn't have to. That's the atonement. God makes it abundantly clear in the Bible that Jesus died for our sins as our substitute, paying the price we owed but could never pay so that we could be reconciled to God forever. And the progressive Christian view of the cross is that the Father, the Father didn't really need Jesus' sacrifice. In Childers' book, she writes, many progressive Christians take it one step further. Jesus is no longer our Savior, but merely an example of how we can do good works in the world and forgive others. Now, those two things are good to do. We're called as Christ followers to do those things, of course. And yet, the truth that Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin is also all over Scripture. And it's strongly in 
early church teachings. And again, in her searching, Shilders went back to, uh, to see what ancient Christian teachers had to say about the, ch- the cross and the idea of, of Jesus as our substitute on the cross. All, and, and all of that is consistently part of their teaching. And making the point that the earliest source, Jesus, first apostles, early church fathers, it was there from the teaching of Jesus himself. Augustine of Hippo. Christ was, and I'm not sure if, have you ever thought this? I don't know how your mind works, but was Augustine overweight? Sorry, I wasn't going to do that, but anyway, some of you will catch that after. He said, Christ was cursed for our offenses in the death which he suffered in bearing our punishment. Pretty clear. Now, contrast Augustine's words with this statement from progressive musician Michael Gungor. I would love to hear more artists sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering a son in that endeavor. And then he adds this disturbing statement. I simply think that blood sacrifice is a very limited metaphor for what the cross can mean in our culture. It's not a metaphor. It's an absolute necessity for our eternal salvation. And it can't be more clear than in a, a very succinct little verse in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews 9, 22, that just simply says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The old King James says, there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. If you sin, Genesis, you'll die. Because there's a brokenness that comes to the relationship from the life-giving God. If you sin, you die. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Pretty important stuff. Finally, what do progressive Christians believe about the resurrection of Jesus? And here I'll simply reference Paul, what he stated in in the New Testament letter to uh, the Christ followers in the city of Corinth. And many of you know this, 1 Corinthians 15. All about if the, if the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus is not raised to life after his crucifixion, we got nothing. Sorry, English teachers. We got nothing. Hmm. I'm so glad that Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God so that I could know him and live with him and be his child from now until eternity and forever. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Another gospel to quote Paul again from Galatians 1.6. Would you recognize one? Another gospel, if you crossed paths with it through a podcast or a book or a YouTube sermon, my beloved Christian friends, this is how I ended last week. I say it again. Please be discerning. New Testament writers implore us to be. (laughs) 
2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, Jude 3 and 4, and so on. After last Sunday's message, someone in our church family shared a very good quote with me that they had recently heard. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. That is good. Because some of this can be so subtle sometimes. Sometimes not. When you're saying Jesus is, God, is not God, that's, pretty, that's more than subtle. But some of this can be really, really subtle. My friends, I implored you last Sunday, and I say it again. Know the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Love the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. We're all growing that direction, I myself included. It's our, it's our, it's our plumb line for what's true. It's our foundation for everything that, of God's good that He wants to bring into our life. That doesn't mean life is easy. Don't misunderstand that statement. No, read your Bible. As pastors, we can't do that for you. And as a matter of fact, the council leaders can't read the Bible for me. I gotta do, I gotta, I've got to do that as a Christ follower myself. Your best life now is not when you have more positive thoughts than negative thoughts. And when you only speak positive words about your destiny. No. Our best life now and eternally is when we understand God's biblical truth about how serious our situation is because of our sin and how available and free God's grace and forgiveness is because of his death and resurrection. That's our best life now. And, and, and purpose and destiny and all those good things come out of that. And purpose starts with obeying the very simple words of Jesus when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Oh, that's love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I just asked for one. Well, you can't have one without the other, actually. I don't know, this is a rabbit trail. We're late. I'm supposed to be finishing now, but I want to share this. Many conversations over the years, genuine people that, that are waiting. It's almost like they're waiting to serve God because God's got something big. And He might in however we may define big. But they wait. And, and they pray. And they wait. Where is it? And they wait. God's big purpose starts with, and in fact is, an obedient daily response to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's what Wouter talked about as he shared on the first Sunday of this year, being available to God. And if you missed that testimony and the others that shared that day, go back and listen. Go back and listen. How do we end up there from what we're talking about? Man, 
There's an excellent little four-minute video by Michael Kruger called, What is Progressive Christianity? And now you're really ticked off because it can be said in four minutes, right? <laughs> well, I'm putting that link, a YouTube link, to that presentation, that brief talk, in the newsletter that we send out every Thursday. And if you're not signed up for that, please do. Please do. Just to keep on board with what's going on and aware of what's going on and prayer points in there and, and some resources that we give like this occasionally. So uh, part of the Eaglemont family, but please, please sign up to receive that newsletter. But I'm going to put that in the Thursday. It'll be in the Thursday newsletter. Um, and so please take, take time to, to listen. Uh, listen to that. Maybe today is your day. You want to choose to follow Christ. You want to choose to surrender your life. You want to choose to turn from your old way. And, and you want to turn from, from, from the, the way of doing life, uh, uh, from your sin. And, and, and you want to turn to a gracious God who, who welcomes you and then walks with you in and through the challenges that life is. And, and, and into eternity. And you would say, I want you, Jesus, to be the forgiver of my sin and the leader of my life. I surrender to you now. I'm going to pause for a moment. You talk to God and tell him that. You can talk to him. You can pray. That's what, that's what prayer is, talking to God. He hears you. He say, God, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to be my substitute, taking upon yourself the punishment for sin that I deserved. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. I invite you to lead my life. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to, to walk as you want me to walk. Forgive me, Lord. Lead my life. Thank you for the gift of eternity with you because of what you did for me on the cross. I receive you now in Jesus' name. Thank you, God. If that's the desire of your heart and you spoke that prayer, we'd love to come alongside and help you, give you a Bible, give you resources, whatever you need. Uh, you can scan the QR code and a form will pop up that will allow you to give us your contact information and we'd be humbled to be able to have that privilege God bless you for opening your heart to God's truth today.